The Progress Report is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and there's big news coming from Harbinger with three new shows joining the network this summer. We've got Half Past Capitalism with Breach co-founder Drew Ojeje. We've got Sweater Weather, an arts and culture podcast with Aaron Giovone, and Fezevo Recherche from the fine folks at Ricochet Francais. I'm very excited to check these new shows out, and you should check out these new shows as well as other exclusive supporter-only content at harbingermedianetwork.com. Now, on to the show. Friends and enemies, welcome to The Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. I'm recording today here in Amiskwichiwiskaigan, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory on the banks of the Kasiskasawanasipi, or the North Saskatchewan River. Joining us today is Martin Olshinsky, a law professor with the University of Calgary. Martin, uh, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Martin, during the Cold War, there was like a term created to describe the the study of the politics and policies of Soviet Russia, and it was it was called Kremlinology. And like the Soviet Union was this, you know, secretive place; it didn't necessarily give a lot of information out to the West. So, this kind of scholarship was like, you know, heavy on like reading the tea leaves of like appointments and like conjecture and speculation, and and that's kind of where I feel we're, where we're at with this this public inquiry. Uh, it's been incredibly secretive. Uh, this public inquiry headed by Stephen Allen, I should I should clarify, that's that's uh, looking into supposed anti-Alberta energy campaigns. And, and, you know, I think, Martin, you are one of Alberta's foremost inquirologists. How, how do you feel about being dubbed uh, an inquirologist? Yeah, I think I'm I think I'm comfortable with it. Um, you know, I guess, um, Necessity is the mother of all invention. And, and so I think the term uh, and the role um, are sort of just um, required in this context. And I just happen, I guess, to have, um, you know, in, in, there's really sort of, you can think about the inquiry as having sort of these two aspects. One is the substantive aspect, which deals with uh, essentially environmental law and policy, and in particular around the regulatory sort of uh, oversight of the oil sands, and then the other one being this, the process, you know, um, which is essentially administrative law. Those both kind of fall in my wheelhouse. So I guess I'm I'm sort of uh, you know it, I, I won't say that it's uh, a you know totally forced participation. I, you know, there's a lot about this inquiry. I, you know, I get uh, emails from colleagues uh, across Canada who are just like just struck by every twist and turn. And we'll, we'll talk about all of those. Um, they can't believe it. You know, they're just, they're completely um, shocked or, or, or sort of, you know, dumbfounded. So, so it's been, uh, it's been interesting for sure. Uh, so it's kind of a mixture, I guess, of sort of like service and, uh, and interest. Well, we're very pleased to have you on here to do, uh, you know, a, a long discussion and examination of Alberta's very famous never-ending inquiry, right? This this is the song that never ends. Um, and, and I'm glad that we've got someone like you who's kind of studied it so closely from the very beginning on it. Uh, so yes, let's let's just establish a kind of baseline knowledge about the inquiry before we kind of get into everything that has gone wrong with it. And I think a great place to kind of start us off with why the inquiry exists is like the home stretch of the 2019 Alberta election, spring spring 2019, the final weekend before voting. Jason Kenney is doing a campaign rally in Value Valley View, Alberta, the Rally for the North. And, you know, it's, it's a great success. He's, he's cruising to victory. He's going to eventually cruise to victory. And, and at this stage, just a few days before voting, his campaign puts out this press release uh, that's really, and it sums up a kind of consistent stump speech talking point of his over the past few months. It was in his, it was in his platform. And the headline of this press release was, Kenny announces UCP government will pursue legal action against U.S.-funded campaign targeting Alberta's energy. And do you, do you remember this? You probably don't remember the press release, Martin, but you probably do remember the piece by Vivian Krauss. And this was this press release by uh, the UCP campaign was, was essentially a, f- a very tight follow up. Like it was like the next day or the same day, a follow up to this piece by Vivian Krauss. Uh, and this piece had blown up as well. And this piece by Vivian Krauss really like tied together, it tied together us, Progress Alberta. It tied together the Rockefellers, Rachel Notley, various other political enemies of the UCP into a very complicated conspiracy that all of these folks were collaborating together to hurt Alberta uh, while uh, hurt Alberta and specifically Alberta's oil sands while uh, according to Krauss uh, and here's the quote benefiting U.S. interests to the tune of billions unquote 
So do you remember this piece by, by Krauss at all, Martin? Does it oh, I, I do. And in fact, of course, it's it's been in the news lately, right? So, I mean, um, and Ms. Krauss's work uh, has been in the news again lately, um, starting, I guess, a couple of weeks ago. So, yeah, no, I'm, I'm absolutely familiar with it. I've looked at it recently. Yep. Yeah, you were digging through her clips to be, well, we'll get into that later. But yeah, let's, <laughs> but it was funny, like Kenny was actually like interviewing Krauss in a piece of content that was officially branded as like authorized by the UCP with like their campaign phone number at the bottom that was posted on their social media accounts. And in this clip, I mean, it's, it's, it's let's just listen to it. It's, it's pretty wild. Hey guys, I'm here with the amazing Vivian Krauss, who you've probably heard about. Vivian has broken open one of the biggest stories in Canadian politics in the last decade, and it's only now starting to get mainstream media attention. Um, Vivian, uh, why don't you just give us a quick overview of your research on the Tar Sands campaign? Well, you know, Jason, as you know so well, um, we're in a crisis. Here's Alberta, you know, the engine of the Canadian economy in many ways. No province has contributed as much to the prosperity of our whole country as Alberta. And, you know, on the eve of an election, the, the backbone uh, industry of Alberta is practically broken yeah. because the province can't get a pipeline. Yeah. And sad to say, uh, this didn't happen for no reason. This was planned. And it was planned as part of a Rockefeller-funded campaign to landlock Canadian crude. Just to close off, you said you wanted to make a point to Albertans about how oh, important yes. it is to vote. So, the nine. Did you watch Sesame Street? I you did. must of have watched Sesame Street. Can you remember how you know this program is brought to us by the number whatever? Well, this election has got to be brought by the number nine, okay? Because in BC, you know, I'm from BC, right? Yeah. So we had on our last election, on election night, the election was lost by nine votes, okay, nine votes, and a lot of people were kicking themselves that they hadn't they hadn't made more of an effort to get out and vote, right? In the end, there was a recount. And the BC Liberals lost by, it was about 160 votes that they lost, right? So to me, that's a big lesson. And Alberta, you know, don't make that let, don't make that mistake, right? Get out and vote. Yeah. Because you, Alberta, and it's not just Alberta, our country, Jason, our country needs a leader. And I want to thank you for, for stepping up, you know. I, I believe in you because you listen. I know you listen because you listen to me, even when everyone was still saying I was a conspiracy kook, right? So thank you. Thank you for being yeah. here. That's quite a line at the end, isn't it? It is. Yep. The whole thing uh, is, so- is uh, I mean, what's interesting, of course, is that, you know, there's not actually very much said there except for that, you know, like someone's view about um, an assessment of the situation of Alberta, uh, the importance of the oil and gas industry, um, and, and it, by implication uh, to suggest, you know, that there's something uh, inherently wrong uh, that that industry would face any kind of opposition. Yeah, the video really is like an incredible shambling mess. It's it's just under 10 minutes. And, you know, we'll link to the whole thing because it is it is just wild to kind of see in 2021 this this like this. This was how Jason Kenney romped to victory right on on the back of this fight back strategy on the back of, of the idea that that you know, uh, foreign actors were funding an, an unfair, malicious, you know, lie-filled attack on Alberta's economy and on the oil sands specifically, and and this was a reliable part of Kenny's stump speech. This was guaranteed to get people angry, and it helped propel him to victory. Uh, you know, he wasn't necessarily running against Rachel Notley. Uh, he was Jason Kenny was running against you know Justin Trudeau. He was running against these evil foreign funders of this you know, shadowy campaign to besmirch Alberta's oil sands, and and he won. And after he won, he started putting his what he promised in his campaign into action. And in July of of 2019, uh, he won in April. Uh, you know, he announced to great fanfare this uh, this public inquiry. And, you know, there was a press conference, you know, there were cabinet ministers there. Steve Allen was actually briefly there. He's, he's only on camera for like a second and he doesn't say a word, but he, he is at the press conference and this kind of, kind of continues his, uh, him kind of operating in the shadows and not being very, very public. But, but the inquiry was given two and a half million dollars. It was given a year to, uh, complete their inquiry and hand in their final report. And, and how would you, uh, characterize how the inquiry has gone, uh, since July of 2019, Martin? Yeah, I mean, so, uh, um, you know, with respect, um, sideways, I think, is the only way to really um, to describe it. 
<laughs> you're too kind but yes <laughs> sideways is very very accurate if if even generous yeah i mean and 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 that's on, on purpose on my part um so you know and, and i think it's worth pointing out of course though that that you know you're right in some respects there are work quarters who were celebrating the launch of this inquiry but you know at the same time there were a lot of people who were very critical about it right from the outset right and and so of course, we might dismiss the talking heads out of the Globe and Mail, um, who who said very clearly, "This isn't. This is a very undemocratic. This, you know, what is the sin here that they that they were opposed, you know, to what they considered to be unsustainable development um, of the oil and gas sector in Alberta, which, of course, even Peter Lougheed actually suggested um, in the 2000s. Uh, but even closer to home, Don Braid." even pointed out that this was an inherently political uh, beast, right? And that the inquiry power had never been used in such an overtly political way to go after um, to go after uh, a, a group of individuals, basically, who just don't agree, I guess, with the with the governing um, party. And so, uh, you know, I and then, of course, there were concerns uh, expressed by other organizations, Amnesty International, uh, the Mutart Foundation, right? So I think there has been and then, of course, you know, my colleagues, uh, at the University of Calgary, several of us have been ringing um, the alarm. Uh, so I, I do think there was some opposition from those early days. Uh, but I do think at the same time that essentially over the conduct of the inquiry, whatever support it did have um, has been uh, just consistently eroded by a series of, of, of missteps, essentially one misstep after another, um, uh, you know, for the past two years. Yeah. Uh, that that's very fair. So, so you've spent a lot of time researching and writing and thinking about this inquiry. Why did you feel it was kind of worth your time and attention? What is it about this inquiry that uh, you know inspired you to kind of start doing this work? Yeah. Well, so I'm going to borrow um, I'm going to borrow the premier's uh, favorite term and, and essentially say that you know the premise of the very basic premises of the inquiry are false. Um, and, and so that's, that's really, that's the thing that struck me at the outset, uh, you know, and, and what I refer to there, I mean, there's really two things that really glare, um, stand out at me. The first one was the, the terms of reference, you know, and, and the very obvious othering, right? So this wasn't about, this wasn't like, a you know, to, to look into even, even if you were to say like, uh, you know, opposition to oil and gas, you, you know, you could put that in there, but it, it doesn't even say even anti oil and gas, it says anti Alberta, right. And so that's such a, in my mind, such a deliberate and obvious attempt to delegitimize, right, uh, opposition to oil and gas development, to conflate dissent with disloyalty. And that to me, like, so that was a huge red flag for me right there, um, in that language. And it was consistent, you know, with the language, and you see it, uh, you know, in, in the clip that you played earlier, for instance, you know, like Vivian will point out that that the Rockefellers have funded this campaign. Sure, they, they've uh, they've funded part of it, but they didn't fund all of it. You know, and, and, and no one's very, you know, it's interesting when we talk about foreign funding, these aren't these are no one's ever claimed that these are fully. And in fact, you know, Vivian has acknowledged that they are partially funded. Um, she she'll insist that she doesn't know what the exact proportions are. But that's really beside the point. Right. The point is that it, it, there are deliberate choices being made here. Uh, in messaging and in implication, right? And so the implication here is that these are, you know, that 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 you can't be Canadian and you can't be Albertan uh, and support these organizations, right? And I think that that was a very obvious um, and deliberate decision, um, which which just really highlighted the very sort of uh, political and undemocratic nature of of the inquiry. The second point was this idea that you know this idea in the in the definition of anti-Alberta energy campaigns that they are that they opposed or sought to frustrate the economic, you know, the responsible, economic, efficient and timely development of Alberta's oil and gas resources, when that has never been the case. Like, you know, and, and I can point to a, a half a dozen reports written between 2005 and 2015, some of them commissioned by the Alberta government, which make it abundantly clear that we've never had responsible development, that 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 development started to run red hot uh, you know, towards the middle of the 2000s um, and created all kinds of problems, infrastructure problems. Um, we have MPs and MLAs from Fort McMurray complaining about the lack of infrastructure, complaining about the lack of services. We have uh, the Royal Society of Canada in 2010 saying that the regulatory capacity um, of both the Alberta and Canadian governments has been outstripped 
by the pace of development. We have uh, re two monitoring reports in 2011, environmental monitoring reports, that basically say that the environmental monitoring system that you had in place to just even assess the, the baseline environment conditions is essentially worthless, right? And we needed to, so, you know, and, and it just goes on. I, honestly, there are like do, a half dozen of these reports that I can point to. So, so right there, I have, you know, these two strong flags, these strong red flags that say to me that um, this inquiry is bogus. Uh, and, and then I think, you know, frankly, I don't, you know, I don't know if this is, Again, I mentioned at the outset, you know, I'm, a, I'm an environmental law professor, but I'm also an administrative law professor. And, you know, one of the most canonical, canonical, I can't even think of the word. Um, one of the most important cases in administrative law from a rule of law perspective is this famous case, Roncarelli versus Duplessis, where the premier of Quebec tried to punish um, Frank Roncarelli, who was a restaurant owner, because he was using his profits from his restaurant business he was using those to bail out Jehovah's Witnesses, who at the time were really, uh, you know, a thorn in the side of the Duplessis government. Um, and so the premier sought to revoke his liquor license. And, and eventually the thing goes to court and the, and, and the Supreme Court in this really uh, eloquent judgment says, like, of course you can't do that. Of course, there's a perspective within which this legislative regime um, is intended to operate. And it doesn't include like these the whims of the premier to sort of lash out and punish people who are exercising their civil rights. And so to me, I think um, the parallels were just so strong uh, to this context. This was so clearly to me about punishing environmentalists, uh, staff, donors, anyone who associates with environmental groups um, for being concerned about the environment. Uh, and, you know, and, and what's interesting, of course, this is what, the, you know, in the news recently, this is the thing that's become plain is that there are no, there is no evidence of commercial U.S. interests there. Um, essentially, what it comes down to is, you know, it looks like the sin committed here um, by these groups is that they accepted foreign funding uh, in part to deal with a problem that is clearly global and international in scope. So, so all of that, you know, I, I, yeah, that's that's it. That's it in a nutshell. Yeah, and I and I think I have to say off the top that I am not a, a neutral actor when discussing this inquiry, right? Like that the press release that I referenced off the top, I mean that explicitly mentioned Progress Alberta, the parent organization of this podcast, by name. And you know, I have to be honest when when the inquiry was officially launched, you know, I was scared, and you know, I had been explicitly threatened with legal action by a vindictive and powerful politician who now had the means to, you know, drag my name through the mud and you know, maybe even shut down Progress Alberta, essentially hold me upside down by my ankles and shake me. I mean, if if you wanted to, thankfully, the inquiry was kind of conducted so incompetently that it, it never, I never even got an email from them. But we threatened to sue the inquiry off the top and have it shut down if it ever moved forward with things that public inquiries usually do, like public hearings. Um, you know, if this inquiry ever acted like a public inquiry, we would have sued it, but it, it never acted like a public inquiry, did it? Martin? Well, that's it. Right. And, and that, so I've, I've struggled a little bit with that because, uh, you know, the first point that you make is absolutely correct. And, you know, and, and, and I know, um, you know, and I should say too, like I am, I, I am, I think I try to be as objective as possible. And I, and I think that in, in my analysis, uh, of the various twists and turns in this inquiry, I've sought to apply legal principles um, uh, in a dispassionate way, um, but I'm also not a totally neutral party. I, I mean, I, I, to get standing, and we'll talk about that in a second, um, you know, I had to show that I had a direct interest uh, in the substance of the inquiry. And, you know, so for instance, like I've donated, whether it's money or time to various environmental organizations since I can remember, like since I was an adult, um, basically. Um, and again, that, that, that's that's tied into why I knew that so much of this inquiry was bogus, because, for instance, you know, you take an organization like EcoJustice, which I've supported um, for, for over a decade. You know, I know and they know and their supporters know that they have fought uh, metal mines in B.C. They've opposed irrigation dams, you know, the famous Old Man River case that went to the Supreme Court in 1992 that, you know, EcoJustice was there. Um, they've opposed nuclear um, facilities in Ontario, they opposed uh, genetic modified fish in Atlantic Canada. And, you know, it, so it's anyone who has any knowledge of this space, who has spent time in it, knows that groups like EcoJustice, like West Coast, uh, they've been working on issues like there's no question of their bona fides. 
but but to get to your point too, like, but yeah, that suddenly you have the machinery of the state, and I think this is something that a lot of people maybe don't appreciate, and and maybe there'll be time to discuss it, you know, down the road. But like, what does it mean to wake up and find out that you're being investigated by the state, in in a shadow in a shadowy inquiry where the commissioner doesn't even release his rules of procedure and um, for 14 months after the terms of reference are 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 sort of posted. And after he's already submitted an interim report, um, what does it mean? You know, and, and so I've alluded to in the past, and my wife always tells me it's a bad idea. But, you know, like if Kafka were to imagine a public inquiry, I don't think he could pick a better example than this one. You know, I, and, and so and I mean, and, and that, it's, it's interesting because people say, well, what's the big deal? It's just about getting these facts. It's just a, it's just a fact finding investigation. You know, it's just about figuring out these facts. And it's like, well, but what well, let's think about. The, the context for that fact-finding investigation. Let's let's think about everything that's loaded into it and how skewed it is and how narrowly framed it's become. Is it really just a fact-finding investigation or is it actually intended to, to delegitimize and stigmatize um, Canadians and Albertans who are totally patriotic or whatever, but but happen to have happen to be concerned about you know climate change. Right. And so I, I think that's just a really important part. But you're right. It's, it's hard to get really wound up about that stuff because the inquiry hasn't had that effect as much as maybe if they had, you know, some might have hoped because it's had all these missteps along the way. Yes, it has been a, a glorious dumpster fire, but your, your I, words, I think it's real. Yeah, your, my words, not yours. I think it's worth uh, just kind of going through a quick timeline. You mentioned the interim report. I mean, that's the only time that uh, Steve Allen has actually met a deadline is when he handed in his interim report in uh, Jan- end of January 2020. Uh, but I mean, I think there was signs, obviously, even at that point that things that there was going to be trouble ahead, right? Like one, he hadn't started the process of like engaging with the organizations that had been explicitly named by Jason Kenney prior to starting the inquiry, but also the, a, a free of information request that we put in on on to try and get that interim report it was totally denied we didn't even get a chance to see like the email addresses or the page numbers but we did learn the page count of that interim report and it was only 12 pages which um for six months of work is not a tremendous amount of content uh you know that's including a title page you know i, I have no idea whether that was double spaced or what the font size was but um you know there, there was signs and i think it's worth just kind of blowing through the timeline really fast just just to like get a sense of of how uh, bad it has been, right? So, so interim report handed in in January uh, of 2020. He, you know, COVID happens, whatever. He blows his first deadline of July 2020. Deadlines push back to October 31st, and Alan is given another million dollars, uh, bringing the total budget for this inquiry. I should point out to three and a half million. Uh, uh, another fun fact: Steve Allen is getting paid two hundred ninety-one thousand dollars a year to do this. But Allen also blew that October thirty-first deadline. He was given until January thirty-first, twenty twenty-one. Allen then blew his January thirty-first, twenty twenty-one deadline. That deadline was pushed to May thirty-first, twenty twenty-one. That is the deadline that he has blown most recently. The end of May. It's June now. The report still isn't in, and his uh, deadline has now been pushed to July thirtieth, twenty twenty-one. A full year after his original deadline for when the uh, the inquiry's final report was supposed to be submitted to government. So, I mean, you're a law professor, you're teaching students. Um, you know, do, do people get to typically get to hand in assignments a year after their original deadline? Yeah, so so not typically. Uh, but, I, you know, I think an important point to make <laughs> here, um, you know, uh, uh, so I was, you know, this idea that, you know, essentially it's just like not able to get your assignment in on time um, not being able to finish the work. I, I think I operated under that premise for a while. There's that word again. Um, but, you know, what's interesting, of course, is that in the most recent bit of news, um, you know, we had a former uh, PCMLA, Donna Kennedy Glantz, come out uh, on a podcast uh, uh, with the CBC where she basically suggested, you know, she, she talks about this negotiation between Alan and the Minister of Energy and her department. And so, of course, the thing that I'm starting to think, I guess, uh, and I think others have thought this too now at this point, is that it may not so much be a question of finishing it. Uh, it. It may be finished. It's just that the government isn't prepared to accept it in its final form, right? This is the thing that we're starting to, 
Um, I think that is at the very least a very plausible theory at this point is that is that Alan has finished or thought he has finished the work, um, but that <laughs> but that the government keeps keeps saying to him not good enough, which of course is hugely pro- if if true is just like just like mind blowing um, because that it, it doesn't work that way right. Um, Alan is supposed to be an independent commissioner. He writes his report, um, you know, and, and, you know, there is one provision in his terms of reference, which allows him to go back to the government uh, to adjust the terms of reference if required. And we've seen them do that. And, and that's been super problematic as well. But it definitely doesn't contemplate this idea where, you know, um, that there can be this negotiation again um, uh, between what this final product is going to look like. You know, he's the commissioner. He was appointed. He makes the, he makes that call. If there's any truth to this to this suggestion, um, then I mean, I think it basically means that that his report will be dead on arrival from a legal perspective. So, you know, and, and go and not to get into the weeds on this stuff, but one of the things when we talk about uh, these kinds of inquiries, you know, the the issue of bias is obviously very important. Um, and, and it's been addressed a little bit that there was early litigation by EcoJustice, but I think it's important for your listeners to understand that that challenge that EcoJustice lost was really just around the launch of the inquiry. It, it, it didn't contemplate and it didn't get into the weeds on like the, the conduct itself. It was really limited to the launch um, and, and, and then tied a little bit to, to Mr. Allen's um, history of political donations and whether those created a, a reasonable apprehension of bias. The court said essentially it's premature at this point. Um, so, th- so that argument can be made. And, and so then a- another part of that bias argument is, is independence, you know, and essentially all of it's around this idea that an administrative decision maker like Alan is supposed to be impartial. And so one way that you're not impartial, of course, is if you have some kind of bias. But another way in which you're not going to be impartial is if you're not actually independent. And so, again, you know, that's the other just theory that we have to sort of, I think, at least entertain here is that um, that there is a report, uh, but that the that the minister, uh, Sonia Savage, um, ha- and her staff have somehow suggested that it's not adequate, it's not sufficient. And, and on that front, too, I'll say with this last um, extension also, I think it's really important to point out that what it does is, is you know, so Alan was supposed to submit his uh, report on May 31st, and then the minister would have 90 days uh, to sit on it again, which is really weird. No, I don't really understand why they would need to sit on that report for three months before releasing it. But but in any event, that meant that it would have been out by the end of August, which, of course, is about a month away, uh, just over just a little bit over, more than a month away from, you know, a busy electoral sort of season in, in Alberta. Right. With not just municipal elections, but all these referenda with this. Extent- and, and don't forget Senate and, elections. And Martin. Right, Those yes. are very important. Yes. Uh, I am running for Senate. Vote Duncan Kinney for Senate. It's a very important yeah. election. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. So now the report doesn't have to be released until October 30th. The 90-day clock starts July and, you know, you do the math. That's that's end of October. And I find that sort of I find that timing curious. And again, I'm trying to I'm trying not to put on a tinfoil hat, but again, I think these are things that people need to understand that this, you know, it was a major quiver uh, in the fight back strategy uh, was this public inquiry and yet, you know, now we see that it won't be made public until after, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and then there's a clear link, of course, between referenda on equalization and, and fair deals and all that kind of stuff with this, this notion of martyrdom um, in this province. Um, and, uh, and of course, if the report doesn't substantiate it, well, that's not very convenient um, for, those, for those, you know, interests that would like to, to sort of like capitalize on Albertans' frustration um, and, and really... Um, use it to, 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 to sort of drive their own political agendas. Yes. And, and you mentioned independence, whether, whether this inquiry is really independent or not. I mean, this, there's a reason why these public inquiries are typically headed up by judges or ex judges. Right. And, you know, it's for obvious reasons. These are like quasi judicial produce, quasi judicial produce proceedings. You know, judges are largely perceived as impartial. Like Alan is an accountant and a, and a UCP donor who like personally campaigned for and donated to the cabinet minister that appointed him to the position, you know, like there's, there's, I don't think anyone is under the, uh, the misapprehension that Alan is this like, uh, independent actor in this case. And, and the Donna Kennedy glands blabbing to the CBC podcast about this, I mean, really just confirms what we all knew. 
Yeah, I mean, it's tricky, right? I mean, and and uh, so we'll, time will tell. Like I said, I mean, you know, one person who might disagree with you is, is Justice Horner. Um, uh, and <laughs> yes. so, you know, but I think it's important to point out again that her decision was rendered uh, before those, before that CBC podcast, right? And before those facts came out um, or allegations anyways, we don't know that they're facts or not, but, but certainly all of that is relevant um, and, and will be brought up in, in the almost inevitable legal challenge to this report, if and when it's finally made public. Yes. And, and I think, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on as well is to, is to talk about the, like, where this inquiry is going with regards to the law, right? And the Public Inquiries Act is the legislation that dictates how these things work, right? Like Kenny could have called a special committee or a legislative committee or hired a special prosecutor to do this, but he didn't, you know, he, he called a public inquiry and maybe he just called a public inquiry because it like sounds good, but like, a public inquiry is duty bound to follow the rules. And there is one kind of extraordinary thing that has still not happened with regards to this inquiry. That's now what 22, 23 months old. And they still have not uh, sent out like section 13 notices or misconduct notices. And can you explain to our audience, like what that, what those kind of notices are and why they are important uh, given everything that has been said in the lead up to this inquiry? Yeah. So, you know, basically, um, at common law, even before there was like legislation around these kinds of things, you know, so we, we are a common law country in Canada, uh, with the exception of Quebec. Um, and so, but for, for over 200 years and more even, there's been this notion that when the state does certain things, it's bound by certain rules of fairness, you know, and in the past, we used to refer to this notion of natural justice. Um, now that's become essentially what we call a doctrine of procedural fairness. Um, and it varies. It's contextual. It depends on, on the situation. It depends on the interests at stake. It depends on the kind of decision. But it's, you know, suffice it to say that an inquiry like this, which is essentially, you know, like making, you know, accusing uh, organizations of engaging in anti-Alberta energy campaigns, um, figures in the high end of the spectrum in terms of uh, the the uh, procedural fairness that is owed. And I'm going to apologize to your listeners right now. My, my computer is making, uh, my emails are coming through and I can't seem to get that to turn off. Um, but uh, it's, so it, it's at the high end. And so what that usually means is, for instance, you know, we have this suite of procedural rights that we refer to. And some of these are now, of course, not surprisingly, baked into the legislation um, because legislatures pay attention right to the courts. And they're like, well, we're not going to, why don't we spell some of this out just to sort of avoid any confusion? And so the Public Inquiries Act spells out certain procedural protections, right? Um, and, and obvious ones are things like, um, you know, notice, you know, like uh, notice that, you know, there's a, a hearing that is relevant to your interests, if it is in fact relevant to your interests, because of course you can't participate and you can't make your argument if you don't know uh, what case you have to meet. And let's just say like right off the bat right there, you know, this goes back to the issue of the delay in, in the rules of practice and procedure. The inquiries launched in July. In the fall of 20, that's so July 2019. In that fall, EcoJustice writes to commissioner says, okay, well, um, can you please let us all know how you're going to go about this? Like, what are the rules? Could you please prepare that? He doesn't do it. He submits an interim report. He still doesn't do it. EcoJustice brings a lawsuit to force him to essentially to do that. And at the, or, or at least the, the, one of the grounds is that he still hasn't done this. And at the 11th hour in September, 14 months, September, 2020, 14 months after the launch, he releases these rules of procedure. So that's, that gives you an example of like, sort of like the, the clear palms there, but then to, to get to the notices. So say he does all his investigation, there's a potential. I mean, public inquiries are, you know, designed to essentially look into matters. You know, you can think about inquiries that people would know about. Um, the Crevier Commission into the blood scandal, right? The blood tainting scandals in the 1980s. Um, in that context, what happened is that, you know, essentially the, the commissioner made findings that certain organizations dropped the ball, basically, right? So these are these these are essentially findings, adverse findings or, or findings of misconduct. And... Um, and so in that context, the commissioner wrote to all the parties well in advance of his five. So he had so he's, he'd done the investigative work. He's preparing his report. He, he says, look, I think I'm going to make these findings. He, so he then gives notice to those parties. He says, look, these are the potential findings that I'll be making. Let's come up with a system. I'm going to give you two weeks to say, like, what, how do you want to respond to this? And then, and then there was a hearing, you know, and, and those organizations were allowed to, like, 
in that commission, in that inquiry, for instance, like everything was a matter of public record. Everybody was able to cross-examine everybody else. Um, everything was clear and out front. Um, and, and so then at the end of that, we say, look, you've been given those opportunities. So then if the commissioner makes those findings, you know, you may disagree with them, but at least you can say, well, I had my chance to answer the, the allegations. This is what's been missing so far for 23 months. You're right, going on 23 months in this inquiry um, is that there have been no notices sent, you know, and, and we kept waiting, you know, like it was interesting, as you say, the, the, when the extension started to come, you know, the, the second extension into October. So people started to ask in September, well, has he contacted anyone? And the news was, no, he hadn't contacted anyone. And so then there's an extension until January. And, and in January, people started asking, well, has he contacted anyone? And again, then, you know, the green pieces and the ecojustice are like, no, we got no notices of any adverse findings. And so then we wait for the next three months. And then surely now the extension into May, February, March, April, he's going to be doing this work. But still, you know, in, in late April and early May, we start to get word that still he hasn't contacted any of these organizations. And of course, the, the minister invokes the totally bogus excuse of, of the litigation brought by EcoJustice. And I just want your listeners to be clear that that litigation was over in February. Every, all of the work that was involved, it took the judge from February until April, uh, end of April, or sorry, uh, mid-May to, to render her decision. But everything, she was the only one working on that litigation for those three months. Okay. So, so we all thought surely he was going to send those out and he still hasn't. And, and now again, there are two, at least two sort of competing theories. One is that they're not sure. Uh, I mean, they, that they're having a trouble reaching some of these organizations. That seems hard. Those organizations have no trouble reaching him. I know that, you know, again, we know that Greenpeace has reached, reached out to Alan um, because when he released those commission reports that we haven't talked about yet, um, in January, a bunch of those were slagging Greenpeace, basically, and they wrote him and said, well, dude, you, you released these into the public and you never gave us a heads up. Um, how is that fair? Um, the other the other explanation is that, and, and I think this is you know, an important one to consider, is that he has made no adverse findings. And of course, when you think about the fact that there's that the false and that he lobbed off the false and misleading information part from it. So right. So like one of the basic premises of this inquiry, right, was this idea of defamation. But that got dropped almost immediately, right? Like, the, you know, we don't know exactly when, but but one of the first thing that gets dropped is, and he makes it very clear, I don't have the time and resources, he says, um, which again, yeah. we can get into whether that's a legitimate reason, but um, <laughs> that he's not going to fact check these organizations. So what's left? How do you make a finding? How do you make an adverse finding against an organization for receiving funding, which international funding, which multiple organizations do, you know, the Mutart Foundation pointed out that out of nine or different kinds of organizations, it's religious organizations in Alberta that receive the most foreign funding. And environmental groups were ninth. Um, yeah, universities, universities are, are huge, are huge benefit, that, benefactors right? of foreign You know, of course, funding. that yeah. political, you know, conservative-leaning think tanks, uh, the Fraser Institute, um, various other organizations um, are supported financially and otherwise by American organizations. So, like, you know, going back to your earlier point, like this is a, this is, you're right, it's a quasi-judicial tribunal. It's bound by the rules of procedural fairness, but also substantive rationality. And, and that, I think that's the one that's really tripping this all up. How do you accuse someone of an adverse, you know, of adverse findings of, of a misconduct when everything that they did was apparently legal? Because, you know, they were receiving funding, they disclosed it in their charitable, you know, um, required charitable uh, files and records, you know, like how is he going to accuse anyone? And this is why I bring up the, the, uh, this is why I wanted that explanation of these section 13 notices. Cause like at the core, if he doesn't send out any section 13 notices, like did anyone do anything wrong? Why did we have, why did we spend three and a half million dollars to confirm that money crosses borders for a variety of reasons? Like, just a, a huge waste of time, right? And a huge waste of time that's incredible when you consider the sheer volume of negative press that the inquiry has managed to generate over its 22 going on 23 months, right? Like I have a list here in my notes of all of the bad, all of the like negative press and scandals that they, this thing has uh, generated. I'm just going to run through them really fast. And, and we're going to end on one that I think is uh, the natural endpoint for this. But like early on, the tip line got people mad. Uh, headline, province's new public inquiry 
tip line for anti-energy campaign blows up the internet. Then it was revealed by Charles Rosnell at CBC uh, that uh, Steve Allen handed over a $905,000 sole source contract to his son's law firm, where he's a partner at. Uh, also handed over uh, a similar sole source contract to Deloitte, where one of his longtime business partners is also um, a partner. Uh, then it came out that Commissioner Allen had uh, both campaigned and uh, donated to uh, Justice Minister, at the, at the time, Justice Minister Doug Schweitzer. Doug Schweitzer was the person responsible for starting up this inquiry as it was done under the Justice Minister's purview. You know, you've got state charities, the Mutart Foundation, an organization I'd never even heard of, coming out of the woodwork to like blast the charity, saying that this inquiry was creating a culture of fear. Um, you know, the, the, again, the whole uh, secrecy of all this was just covered multiple times. The details about its budget were secret. Its findings, who it was talking to was secret. There was the eco-justice lawsuit, which generated a whole wave of negative headlines for them. It comes out that they changed their terms of reference that the, that you mentioned, that they won't be considering whether there was in fact lies or not. They won't fact check the inquiry. Um, you know, we've got the fact that that uh, Steve Allen went to Palm Springs in the middle of a global pandemic to uh, work on the inquiry, which is I do all my best work in Palm Springs in the middle of a pandemic. I don't know about you. Uh, and finally, the, the granddaddy of all the scandals, the one that generated probably the biggest cycle of bad press was the release of these reports that the Allen inquiry had paid for and commissioned and you were deeply involved in this. You called the content of these reports kind of textbook climate denialism. And you wrote a piece for the Alberta Law Blog that kind of delved into this specifically. But these these things were absolutely wild uh, documents for an ostensible like public inquiry to commission as well as like have them be on the record. Uh, how do you want to frame and, and characterize these reports, Martin, beyond the, the textbook climate denialism? Yeah, I mean, it's, and so it, it ties in, I think, a little bit uh, into our discussion about the findings, adverse findings and findings of misconduct. I mean, it's it's always this idea that this isn't bon- like that these aren't genuine concerns, right? Th- there's a refusal by the premier uh, and, and, and let's say that side of our sort of politics to accept any kind of legitimate criticism uh, of the oil sands and of oil and gas development. And so, you know, so starting off with the idea that, you know, it wasn't, these aren't bona fide environmental interests. These are, it's essentially market manipulation. It's U.S. commercial interests. Okay, so now that that ghost has been finally let go. Um, the, the commission reports tell another story. So, okay, fine. It's maybe not clear U.S. commercial interests. It's not capitalism. It's socialism. Okay, it's, it's, uh, you know, these are it's those damn watermelons, exactly, right? green on the outside and red exactly, on the right. Inside. It's a Marxist plot. They want to take away your pot, your, your wealth. They want to take away your convenience. They want to take away your standard of living. They want to create a utopia, you know, and so, you know, that's the next step, right? So, so once, once you let go of the ghost uh, of, of, again, like, like a commercial, essentially like conspiracy, then you're into, um, again, nefarious, Marxist, socialist, McCarthy-esque sort of allegations, okay, that, okay, well, fine, but then it's not legitimate anyways, right? It's always about saying, it's always about delegitimizing um, the core of the argument, which was always that climate change, right? Uh, It was tailings, it was uh, caribou, it was First Nations, like, these were the concerns. And instead of ever addressing those head on, it's always been an attempt to delegitimize the messenger. and so, you know, going back to what Alan might say and, and what those reports, I think, were intended, I, I don't want to infer intentions, I guess that's, I'm speculating at this point, but one thing that they could have done and, and they seem to do on their faces is to provide that alternative negative na- narrative that would, again, justify the anger, justify the uh, othering, justify this notion, you know, I think this idea that environmental groups like Pembina, um, would not essentially be able to do their work anymore in Alberta, that you would create such a hostile environment for them. And so, you know, when it comes down to Alan's report, you know, there's a bit of a wink and a nod, I think, going on, even if he doesn't make any adverse findings. And again, because I think that would be very hard to do. How do you, how do you, how, you know, words have meaning and, and how do you give meaning to those words? But let's just say, so let's say he doesn't, but he releases a report that shows that these groups took money from international sources. For a segment of our population, for a segment of our politics in this province, that's enough. 
They don't care about the double standard. They don't care about the hypocrisy. They don't care about the glaring inconsistency that other, you know, why can our, why can the industry be foreign funded, but opposition can't be? None of that matters, right? None of that matters. This is always just, it's always about a narrative that allows this, this side of our politics to, at, at all costs, um, not have to chew on the legitimacy of the concerns that were raised, right, about climate change. Um, and, and all those other environmental effects, you know, and, and, and we're just, you know, and climate change is the big sort of thing that people think about. But, you know, of course, we're also talking about potentially 230 or 60 billion dollars in, in underfunded environmental liabilities in this province, um, which, again, that side just almost like it's, it's, it's remarkable to me how they are able to not engage seriously in that issue. Um, and how, how how strongly and deliberately they blinkered themselves to those concerns. So that, you know, and, and I think at some point I said that, I might have suggested that to Alan to say, like, you know, it it's not, even if you don't make any official adverse findings, if you write a report and that report doesn't tell the, the truth, um, the facts, uh, the full facts in context about some of this funding, then you're essentially doing it anyways. You know, you're essentially making those findings. And so then you you, you should probably... You, you know, you're still bound then by procedural fairness to give them that notice. And so we'll see. We'll see what what they're, you know, at this point, I couldn't tell you what is going on there. And that's been one of the things that's been really challenging, of course, in all of this, too, is, you know, having all this discussion. As you say, going back to being an inquirologist, um, there's so much that like the, the, the asymmetry here in information is just like massive. Right. So all of all that yeah. we can do on this side is speculate. I mean, I think that there's been enough enough has been shown and enough has sort of um, been made known that, um, you know, there's reason to think that if, you know, if you had a hunch at the beginning that this thing was not right, um, certainly that <laughs> hunch has been confirmed dozens of times along the way. But, but, but at the end of the day, what it's going to look like is, is anyone's guess. I mean, you raise an interesting point too about the, you know, quarter trillion dollars of environmental liabilities that are on the books for Alberta right now. Uh, while, you know, the, all these corporations and folks have, have scampered away with huge profits, uh, th- that like, we're not talking about that. Instead, we're talking about, you know, these, these, <laughs> this Nemeth report that, uh, was uh, commissioned by Steve Allen. It's talking about the transnational progressive movement and, and John Podesta, the Pizzagate guy and George Soros and the great reset. Like it's, it's total, like pay no attention to the man behind the curtain shit, right? Like, it's like, actually, these are the source of all your problems. Exactly. And it's just about scapegoating, right? At the end of the day, it's just about scapegoating. And and so um, that's what this whole thing has been about. It's just been about scapegoating. And, and so I think, I think it's time to, you know, like wrap this up. Like this, this, this pod was originally supposed to be a postmortem on the inquiry, right? We had scheduled this for the day after the couple days after the inquiry was supposed to hand in its final report. It obviously got its extension and it blew its deadline for the fourth time. But I, I, I still don't feel like this two month extension is really going to change much. All of the problems that this inquiry has created for itself aren't going to magically solve by handing in a report in at the end of July or, or whenever it's handed in. Like they decided to have a paper inquiry. They decided to not hold public inquiries. They decided for it to be this incredibly secretive, again, like not public at all public inquiry. Um, I, I, I don't necessarily want to offer advice, I think, because like I thought I think the thing was was a was a bad idea from the very beginning. One that was, again, putting me and my organization, my ability to put food on the table for my family in danger. But it's like this thing was such a catastrophic failure. And, and I still I still don't think it's going to be resolved in two months. And I think it's worth examining why. Right. Like, I think this we've, I mentioned it earlier, like a public inquiry was. You know, if you wanted to have a political circus, like again, hire a special prosecutor, have a have a legislative committee to like call witnesses, and and then and then people know if it's a legislative committee, people know it's a political uh, a farce, right? They were obviously unable to hire a judge, so if they had hired a judge or an ex judge, maybe this thing would have had much more of a veneer of respectability. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think we can talk about this without talking about incompetence, like failing to like you, you mentioned it, right? They didn't have a way to engage. Like they never process to engage with inquiry until two months after their first deadline had passed. And, uh, and also when you come, when you come to incompetence, like 
again, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not. Uh, I'm only repeating what other other lawyers have said to me. But Nigel Banks, your colleague at the University of Calgary, uh, in an interview for a piece I did a while back, he talked about how it's not a great idea to hire a bankruptcy lawyer to be the lead counsel on a public inquiry because bankruptcy lawyers are not necessarily very familiar with public inquiries or administrative law in general. And so he's like, yeah, they're just starting from scratch, right? You're paying them to get started from scratch on how to run an inquiry. Um, what's what's your you know take on why this thing was such a kind of turned out the way it did? Right. And so, so and I can say, well, so we'll separate a little bit for the set for a moment anyways, uh, and I know we're probably running out of time, but you know, so what we can separate even commissioner Allen from the UCP government. Uh, I don't think on the latter front, you know, aggressive incompetence has been a hallmark of this government for the past <laughs> six years, six months, at least, if not longer. I mean, I think actually longer, um, but, but there's no shortage of examples. Um, you know, even just as, as recent as the turning off the taps legislation, right? Uh, the premier will try to wrap that up as, as some kind of promise made and promise kept. But the reality is, is that they let a key piece of legislation lapse um, without renewing it. And then, and then had to go back to the drawing board and reintroduce the thing from scratch. Um, you know, uh, whether it's Keystone, um, other kinds of litigation, you know, at the, at the government level, I, you know, absolutely, I think, incompetence, the parks file, the coal file, like that's the rule. It's the rule um, is, is and, and, and why that's the case, why they have such a weak bench. I don't know. I, you know, it's, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, but it, it certainly seems to be the case. And, you know, and again, it, and maybe as like an example, right, this, this trickles into their issues managers, like for whatever reason, the, the, the skills and ability are just not there. You know, so, you know, and we can, again, that's a, that's an interesting conversation to have um, about why they don't have what, what looks like a, they have a major talent gap. Um, from the commissioner's perspective, I, you know, I think it, yeah, there might be part of it is a, a, just a, a lack of um, sort of that, that tactile sort of sensitivity to, to the issues that are going to pop up here. But I also have to say, like, you know, the commissioner's made choices. He's made many, many choices along the way, and he owns those choices, right? So, for instance, if you look at those rules of procedure, he gives himself essentially unfettered discretion to slice and dice the public record. That's very weird. Like, why would you, why would you give yourself that power, which, of course, is going to make organizations like yourselves, any organization would have to think twice before engaging in, a, in an inquiry where the commissioner has basically said, I decide what becomes public or not. Um, you know, before the end of his first phase, I had sent him, I talked about those six reports that essentially like eviscerate any kind of narrative that oil and gas development in this province has been economic, timely, efficient. Um, he, he could have easily relied on those reports to fact check, for instance, some of those campaigns, or he could have said to the, he could have said to the premier and cabinet, I think we need to change the terms of reference here because I have all these reports and they make it very clear that there were some legitimate concerns here and criticisms um, about how this all shook down. He chose not to do those things. And, and then he, in his, uh, going back to his rules of practice, he said that, for instance, all of the submissions in the first phase are not part of the public inquiry unless I make them. So like, you know, and, and then there's the commission reports. He hires Barry Cooper, Tammy Nemeth, and Energy in Depth, which is just, you know, essentially a, a sidearm of the American Petroleum Institute. Those were his choices, unless, unless he's going to say that they weren't his choices. But that, of course, is a huge <laughs> problem, right? Then again, we get back to a big problem. So, you know, and, and it goes back a little bit to, uh, you know, I want to, you know, come back a little bit to that conversation. The suggestion that that Steve Allen was just looking to help Albertans. Man, if, if that's the case, um, I, I have questions, you know, and, and I probably, they'll never probably be answered because that's that's how these, you know, you don't get to ask a commissioner after the fact, oh, what were you thinking of? Like, why, why did you do this? Why did you go that way? Um, you know, but but that's the reality is that there are multiple decision points in this inquiry along the way where the commissioner made certain choices and those choices have, you know, um, from a from a from the inquiry perspective, if inquiries are about getting to the truth of the matter and laying out all the facts in there and, and, and providing insight, you know, those decisions, in my view, do the opposite. They obscure the facts. They obscure the reality. Um and, and, and that's probably the biggest indictment, you know, like setting everything else aside, you know, that's the biggest problem. And I think Andrew Leach has made this comment as well, is that, you know, maybe in some formulation, uh, in a fair and neutral way to look into this issue, 
there might have been some benefit, but the way it was cooked up and then the way it was implemented, it, it's hard to see it having. It will only further, I think, um, obscure and and politicize and and polarize uh, the conversation about these issues. You say we can't uh, ask uh, Commissioner Allen what he was thinking. But uh, I disagree. As a senator, I am definitely when I call the public inquiry into this public inquiry, we will uh, we will get an opportunity to ask <laughs> Steve Allen what he really was thinking about how he conducted the inquiry. Um, uh, I'm I'm obviously joking, of course. Uh, so I think that's a fantastic way to end it up. I got one last question for you, Martin. Do you think Commissioner Allen makes his latest deadline? Yes or no? Yeah. Yeah, I think he does. Uh, and again, and I agree with you that the timing, you know, like again, so you have a two-year inquiry now at this point, it'll be 25 months at the end of July. Um, two months is not enough um, to fix, I think, and provide even just from a procedural fairness perspective, like those notices would have to go out right away. And even then you think like, you know, of course, the organizations are going to get counsel and they're going to have concerns, all the concerns that I've spelled out around the rules of procedure and practice and all that kind of stuff. So like two months is not enough to deal with all of that, but it's enough to punt the release of the report past uh, that election cycle in October. And I think that at the end of the day, again, I'm speculating now, but, you know, my bet, my hunch is that um, that's the main, that was the main uh, intention here was to punt it past that point, because whatever it does, you know, to borrow again those words, it's it's not going to meet uh, everybody's expectations. And so I think um, I, I don't expect to see a fulsome engagement uh, or a comprehensive engagement with with uh, the, the organizations that we would have assumed um, were going to be part of this. Um, <clears throat> I think it's just a question of pushing that release past uh, that very politically important time period. There's, I mean, there's another way to think about it, though. If they had if they had. Fine. If the report had been handed in as it should have been on May 31st, I mean, they could have released it in the dog days of August when everyone, you know, is happy that they've got their second shot and they're out, you know, gallivanting across the country or the world. I don't know. It's, it's a, uh, I don't know. I, I don't, I cannot conclusively give you a, like, I, I think they'll make this deadline. All the evidence shows that he's just going to blow another deadline. Well, if history is any indication, and, then yeah. I mean, of course, you, know, you blow yeah. past four, you're going to blow past five, but. And they and they keep talking about engaging with, uh, you know, the, the the organizations like they, like Savage and Kenny and uh, keep mentioning this, and it still hasn't happened. And so, if it's going to happen, they're in any way they're going to blow their deadline. So, like, I don't know. I I think uh, I, I think it pays to be cynical when it comes to this, whether whether Steve Allen will make a deadline or not. But uh, but Martin, I want to thank you for taking the uh, time to come on this podcast and talk about this issue. I know you're passionate about it. I think uh, I was uh, incredibly grateful to have you on and to, and to learn about this stuff. What's uh, the best way for people to, how can people find you on the internet? How can people follow along with the work that you yeah, do? Yeah, so I mean, I <laughs> for the time being anyways, I am on Twitter. Um, and I think you've, you've thrown my handle out there. Um, and of course I'm at the law school and, and we have a faculty website and people can always um, find me on there. Um, and it's got my, I think it's got my Twitter handle and, and, and my email as well. Um, I, I prefer nice emails, um, but I get all kinds, so that's fine. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that this issue is just, uh, you know, it's not going away. I guess my, my one hope is that, you know, um, you know, I guess the, the one comment I want to make, and I don't want to sound too sort of naive about it, but I just think people need to understand that this was a serious, um, this was a seriously undemocratic play. Um, and, and, and certain people stood up, I think, to it. And again, you refer to the Mutar Foundation, we know Amnesty International, Ecojustice, of course. Um, but a lot of people didn't. And, and that'll be something that we'll have to think about, too, is the sort of the enablers and the enabling culture in this province. Um, that allowed this thing to continue because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's McCarthyism, you know, and I'm, I don't, you know, again, I think it's, it's blunted only by its incompetence. You're right. That, that's, that's the issue. It's hard to get people riled up about it when you don't see sort of the, the harm. It's not obvious to you in the face, but, but it was, uh, you know, if like, think about the precedent, imagine the, you know, you joked about having a public inquiry into, into the public inquiry, but, you know, uh, uh, you know, if, if this kind of public inquiry is fair game, then, you know, why wouldn't we have an inquiry into separatism? Western separatism. Why wouldn't we have any, why wouldn't we trot out the Wild Rose Independence Party? I mean, they're actually, you know, I talked about confusing dissent with disloyalty. 
they're actually disloyal. They're actually talking about separating from Canada. Should the Trudeau, like, is it okay? Like, presumably it would be fine then for the Trudeau government to launch an inquiry right now and to, and to list those organizations and force them to come into a, into a hearing and divulge their funders, for instance, um, and divulge their, you know, who are they organizing with? And if people, if that makes those people uncomfortable, then they should be very uncomfortable right now because that's the precedent that, that they've allowed and enabled to set in this context. And that's, again, maybe that's a whole other pot, but. <laughs> well, uh, let's, uh, let's keep the conversation open and going. Um, again, thanks to Martin for coming on. Thank you for listening folks. If you like this podcast, if you want to keep hearing more podcasts like it, there's a few things you can do. I'll, I'll be brief because this has been a, a very long, uh, but good conversation and kudos to you for getting all the way to the end. Uh, easiest and best way to support us is to become a patron five, 10, $15 a month, whatever you can afford. There's a link to uh to become a regular donor in the like whatever your podcatcher of choice but also if you go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons it's very easy again credit card five ten fifteen dollars a month if you want to donate to us in other way or if you um have any notes or thoughts comments things you think i need to hear i'm very easy to get a hold of as well you can reach me by email at duncan k at progress alberta.ca and you can reach me on twitter at at duncan kinney uh thanks again to cosmic famu communist for our theme thank you for listening and goodbye